Okay, church, uh, take your Bible and open it to 2 Peter chapter 3, please, okay? 2 Peter chapter 3. This is part four in a series of messages entitled Greatest Hits of Genesis. Genesis is quite literally the book of beginnings. The word Genesis means origins. So in its 50 chapters, we're introduced to some very foundational and fundamental realities of life and living. For instance, in the first 11 chapters, we're introduced to God as creator. We're introduced to family, the creation of life, the introduction to sin in the world, judgment of that sin, and then salvation. The following chapters, chapters 12 to 50, we're introduced to a very special family that starts with Abraham and ends with Joseph. In fact, we can put this on the screen. Creation to the Tower of Babel in the first 11 chapters. Now, next time, I hope you'll be here next Sunday, we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel and some pretty profoundly amazing truths that we pull from that story. The remaining chapters focus on the lives of four patriarchs of Israel. Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and his son Joseph. From this family comes the nation of Israel and then ultimately the Savior Jesus Christ. Now, last time we noted that there are plenty around us who are skeptical of the big stories in Genesis, especially the story that we introduced last time, Noah and his flood. The flood is covered from chapter 6 to chapter 9. We've been in chapter 7 and 8. Today we're going to be in chapters 6 and 9. Many claim that I just can't believe a story like that, a universal flood, a massive ship built by primitive man using primitive tools, two of every kind of animal. That's just too much for me to believe. Now, this is horribly ironic to me because the very first book that a skeptic points to and says, nope, I don't believe it, is the very first book in your Bible that explains why. You see, it's not that it's just too fantastic. There's more to it than that. It has to do with the self-sovereignty of man. It has to do with my inner belief that I know what's right. No one needs to tell me what's right. In fact, last time we introduced it by going to 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to how Peter describes this phenomenon that the flood and its narrative is going to illustrate for us in just a few minutes. Peter writes, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Remember what a scoffer is. A scoffer is a self-indulgent person who doesn't put much or add much into the conversation, doesn't offer information of their own. They simply sit back and criticize your conclusions and your evidence and your information. The internet is full of scoffers, right? Keep reading. Verse 4. Those scoffers will say, where is this coming that Jesus promised? You will remember as you read through the Gospels, quite often when Jesus was talking to his audience or even to his disciples in a closed circle, he spoke of the coming kingdom of God, a kingdom that was coming that would be righteous, where justice would rule the day. Peter is saying, those scoffers are going to say, where is this supposed kingdom of God that Jesus, the one you follow, said is coming? Everything seems the same to me. In fact, continue reading. 
Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, they say. Verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now watch verse 6. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. That is a direct reference to the flood in Noah's day. They intentionally forgot that at one time, everything did change. At one time, the world was judged by water. And what Peter is saying is there's coming a time, the coming kingdom of God, when the world will be judged by fire. So in our present culture, there aren't a lot of people that want to get on board with the ark, excuse the pun. Not a lot of people want to get on board with the idea of a universal flood. They say, you can't be serious. I mean, do you really believe that God destroyed the planet, saving only eight human beings and representatives from the animal kingdom, and did so in a boat? Well, Jesus did. Jesus believed it. Look at uh, Luke chapter 17. The third of the biographies is Luke. And in chapter 17, Jesus is doing what I referred to a moment ago. He's discussing the coming kingdom of God. And in chapter 17 and verse 26, Jesus said this. In my Bible, it's in red. I have a red letter Bible. Everything Jesus said is written in red. Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. He's talking about the coming kingdom of God. So understand what's happening here. Jesus is looking back to a literal, actual, real historical event that occurred, the flood, the days of Noah, and he's using the certainty of that happening to point ahead and say, there's another judgment coming. Keep reading. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, it was business as usual. People were eating and drinking and getting married and going to parties and going to work and that sort of thing. Just as it was in the days of Noah, one day it will be business as, as usual and the kingdom of God will come upon us. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus knew that a universal flood occurred in the days of of Noah. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, that's probably enough proof for you. If Jesus believed and said there was a flood, there was a literal person named Noah, there was an enormous ship that was constructed over a period of 120 years, then I believe it. But that may be fine for you as a follower of Christ, but to a skeptic, he or she is going to need more. They're not nearly so likely to embrace a Bible story just because Jesus said it's true. The question they ask, first and foremost, is how reasonable is that? What evidence is there that there actually was a universal flood a long, long time ago? The answer to that question is there is plenty. We talked about this last time. There are literally mountains of physical evidence. We're talking about thousands of marine fossils, sea creatures that are captured in time, and they're found all around the surface of the globe, and they're not found by the ocean. They're found in the mountains. Anyone with an open mind has to ask themselves the question, how did that marine life wind up on the top of a mountain? 
We've got massive amounts of runoff residue, these canyons that have been carved across the planet from the Grand Canyon up through North America, over into Europe, Asia. The trail of evidence is there, and not just physical evidence, but historical evidence. I told you this last time. There are more than 270 flood cultures all around the world. Apart from Christianity and Judaism, you would expect a flood narrative to a Christian or to a Jew. But apart from Christianity and Jewish uh, cultures, there are more than 270 other cultures from China to South America to Europe to the Middle East that speak of a universal, cataclysmic, disastrous, world-destroying flood. And the similarities are uncanny. I would argue that it's more unreasonable to ignore those mountains of evidence than it is to embrace the idea of a universal worldwide flood. Now, here's what I really hope you get. It's why we started in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to make this connection. I want you to understand why it's so easy for some to push back against the idea of a universal flood. Why wouldn't someone want to accept the biblical narrative, the biblical account of a universal flood? Just look at all of the evidence. It's not simply because the story is just too unbelievable. It's too fantastic for them to believe. Stop and think about this for a moment. <clears throat> right now, there are vehicles that exist that run on batteries, that don't need a driver, that can safely navigate their way through this community and much larger cities over journeys of hundreds, even thousands of miles, and no one ever has to take the wheel. We can transport right now a family from point A to point B, and no one has to drive. That, in my mind, is too fantastic to believe, and yet we know it exists. You know, my dad is 85 years old, and every time I speak into my phone and ask Google a question, and instantaneously I get the score of the game, or I get the picture, I get the map, I get the directions, it blows him away. He doesn't understand how, the, and I don't either. <laughs> but that's too fantastic for me to accept. And yet we trust it. We know it exists. You see, it doesn't have anything to do with how fantastic the story of a universal flood is. It all boils down to something much more basic, something that's connected to the self-sovereignty of every one of us. In fact, here it is. If you accept Noah's flood, then you become accountable to his God. That's the reason that millions upon millions of people worldwide simply can't get their mind around, simply will not accept the straightforward biblical narrative of a universal flood. It's because if you accept that it occurred, then you must become accountable to Noah's God. Now, let's back up for a minute. The real purpose of creation in the first place was that God wanted to be with us. God wanted to enjoy perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect community with all of us. Unlike the evolutionary mind, which assumes that man is the end result of some accidental random chain reaction event that occurred over millions of years, and poof, we wound up with man accidentally. No, 
The Bible teaches that man was the goal in the first place. From the moment God separated light from darkness, the expansive galaxies of our solar system, everything was set up for us. Life is not the accidental result of a random, meaningless process. Life is the point of the process. That's why, as followers of Jesus Christ, we stand for the sanctity of human life, even in the womb. And that's why it's so easily, so easily dismissed to those who believe that that baby, that life in general, is merely an accident. The Bible teaches that God wants to know you. God wants to love you. God wants to fellowship with you. You see, remember, God already existed in eternity past in perfect harmony in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The three in one God. Don't ask me to explain that. You've got to accept it. The Bible simply assumes it. It doesn't try to teach it. God already existed in perfect harmony, perfect unity within himself, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. God wanted to expand the dimensions of that relationship by including you and me. That was the goal when he first created man. Remember, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says, let us make man in our image. Notice the use of the plural pronouns, us and our. That is a reference to the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit said, let us make man in our own image. God wants to love you. It is in his motivation, it's part of his character to love you, to know you, to exist with you. That's why he created you. That's why at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, I believe, he looked back over the sixth day of creation and all the five that had come before it. It began by separating light from darkness. And the zenith, the climax, was the creation of male and female. He put them together. They became one. And he said, this is very, very good. It's because God loves you. But here's what we fail to realize. At that moment, a competition began. At that moment, a competition for my loyalty began between God and me. At that moment, a competition for my devotion, my surrender, my love, my affection began, at least from our perspective. And from that moment on, this ongoing competition would continue throughout the Bible. Noah's story in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, is just another example of this reoccurring theme that repeats itself over and over and over in the Bible. Here it is. God wants to live with us in perfect community, and we will decide if this is what we want for ourselves. Now, if you know your Old Testament, if you know the stories and the narrative and the history of Israel, you know this is a reoccurring theme. Over and over and over and over, God demonstrates his willingness to forgive. God demonstrates his mercy and his grace, his unconditional love, because he wants to live with us in perfect community. But we have the freedom. We have the option to decide if that's what we want for ourselves. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. Let's begin. Genesis chapter 6. Note verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. All right, stop. 
every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That speaks to my depravity. That speaks to your depravity. Every impulse, every neuron as it fires to create the thought begins apart from God, begins with evil. It begins with self. It doesn't begin for others, and it doesn't begin certainly for God. Now, don't misunderstand. Depravity doesn't mean that you are always as bad as you can possibly be. That's not depravity. We all know that's not the case. We're not as bad as we possibly could be. So what does the Bible mean? The Bible means that we're as bad off as we can be. Because the potential for evil is always with me. The potential for hate is in me. The potential for racism is in me. The potential for spite, for bitterness. The potential for deceit, it's in me. If you're honest with yourself, you know it's in you too. There have been times in my life, times in yours, when we've acted on those impulses. Why? Because every inclination begins with me. I am self-sovereign. I decide what's appropriate in this circumstance or this situation. Depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be all the time. It means you're simply going to miss the mark. You realize that's what the word sin means. There's a target out there of righteousness, and I draw back and I miss the mark. I've sinned. Now, to what degree I sin is not the issue. There are bigger sinners than others. I get it. But we're all prone every inclination Begins with self. Mankind will be true to himself. That's that competition. Mankind over and over and over again, almost daily, decides, nope, not going to live in perfect harmony with God. Too difficult. Keep reading. Verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. If Noah's record teaches us anything... It teaches us these two things. Here's number one. Even in our state of blatant selfishness and sin, God wants us back. Even though we let him down again, God wants us back. God loves us, and that love is unchanging, unconditional, and everlasting. Rather than just wipe it all away and be done with it, Noah's flood teaches that he would begin again. He would take another chance on man. He wants you. He loves you. It also teaches us that God will start over using the best, the most honorable man that he can find. Verse 8 of chapter 6 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's Noah. God decided to, rather than just wipe it all out, he would start over. He would begin again using the best, most honorable man that he could find. And this is pretty funny because not often in Scripture does the Bible reveal that God picks the most likely candidate. Noah is the most likely candidate to begin again because he found favor in God's eyes. He was the most righteous among men. So God chose the most likely candidate to start over. You realize there are dozens and dozens of examples of the opposite. In fact, more often than not, God chooses the most unlikely candidate to fulfill his purpose. Think about Moses. Moses was ill-equipped. Think about Rahab, the harlot. 
God used her, chose her. Think about David, the least of Jesse's sons. Think about the child king, Josiah, just a child when he took the throne and God used him. Think about Ruth. Think about the disciples, uneducated for the most part, fishermen, not politicians, not world leaders. Think about the murderer turned missionary, the apostle Paul. Think about Paul's protege, Timothy, a sort of a kind of a weak, timid young man who led one of the most powerful and influential churches in the New Testament. God typically chooses the least likely candidate so that he can shine. But in this instance, God chose the most likely candidate. Now, by the time we get to chapter 9, the flood is over. The ark is resting. The floodwaters are receding. Noah and his family are safe. God has promised, I'll never do that again. I'll never destroy the planet this way again. God's instructed them, go out, scatter across the earth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's time to start walking in close fellowship with me again. Watch. Verse 18 of chapter 9. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So those are Noah's three sons in birth order. Shem, the firstborn. Ham, the middle son. And Japheth, the youngest. These were Noah's three sons. Now watch what happens next. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now why did they throw in one of many grandchildren at this point? That's the point of the message today. Because chapter 8 and verse 21 reveals to us that in the midst of God's promise never to destroy the world by fire or by earth, by water again, that evil and every inclination in man still existed. That's why Canaan is noted here. That's why only one of the grandchildren is noted in verse 18. Keep reading. Verse 19, these were the three sons of Noah. From them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Now watch, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. So Noah was a farmer. He had agricultural expertise. First thing he did when he got off the ark was he planted a vineyard. Now, I want to show you a parallel from Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And now we're going to connect it to Noah these many generations later. Okay? In the Garden of Eden, there was a specific plot of land, and on that land grew a tree. And the fruit of that tree led Adam and Eve to sin, to disobey, to fall away from God. It's about to happen again. Watch. He planted a vineyard, verse 21. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered inside his tent. Again, remember, special land, a special plot of land, the Garden of Eden. Okay, from the fruit of that tree which grew, let's call it an apple for the sake of discussion, that led to sin. So you've got special land, the Garden of Eden, special land, Noah's vineyard. You've got a tree that produces fruit that leads to sin. You've got fruit of the tree that produces fruit that leads him to sin. In both cases, when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the first things they realized, oh, I'm naked. And what did God do? He covered them. Noah is about to be found naked. 
the result of sin, and his sons will cover him. Watch. Ham, verse 22, the father of Canaan, there he is again. Many of you probably think in this story from Sunday school because of the difference between your learning 20 years ago, 30 years ago from the King James Version versus our teaching today with a more modern, more complete New International Version, that Ham is the culprit in the story of Noah and his drunkenness. No, you're going to find out it's Canaan, Ham's son, Noah's youngest grandson. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his brothers outside. Now follow me because there's a lot more happening here than simple nudity, okay? But Shem and Japheth, they took a garment, they laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked backward. Why? Because of the shame that was associated, not with a simple man's nakedness, that wasn't the shame. It was what had taken place in conjunction with Noah's grandson, Canaan. They walked backward. They covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. Noah's not just naked. I'm trying to be clear here. Something perverse has happened here, and it involves his own grandson, Canaan. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out, watch, what his youngest son had done to him. Wait a minute. I I thought it was the grandson. Uh, Now it says youngest son. That's simply a a Bible translation uh, choice. We know that Ham was not Noah's youngest son because they're given to us in birth order earlier in the passage. There's Shem, the oldest, Ham, the middle, and Japheth, the youngest. But in ancient times, especially in biblical literature, it was very much widely accepted for Noah as the patriarch, the head of the family, to call a grandson a son because it was Noah's seed. It was through Noah's line. So we're not talking about Ham here. We're talking about Canaan. If that's not clear enough for you, keep reading. When Noah awoke and saw out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan! See, not Ham. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. He will be to his brothers. Cursed be Canaan. All because God's favored son, Noah, God's chosen instrument, the most righteous among them, had shined for a moment, but now lays naked, humiliated in front of his own boys. It's a sad ending to me, to what's an otherwise amazing story. Our hero has fallen, which is, again, if you know your Bible, that's the pattern. That's the case over and over and over and over again. We no sooner fall in love with Moses, man, what a leader, that he falls, that he fails. We no sooner fall in love with David, my goodness, if I could be a man like David, boom, adultery and murder. We no sooner fall in love with the disciples that Peter doesn't deny that he even knows Jesus three times on the night he was betrayed. We no sooner fall in love with this one. No sooner idolize that one. Bam, they fall from the perch that we place them upon. Well, now it's happened to Noah. He was once favored in God's eyes. He was the most righteous among all men, but he's now humiliated himself with a member of his own family. Here's the lesson. Here's the lesson I hope you get this. The solution to our sin problem is not found in us, not even the best of us. 
You see, the solution to my depravity is not found in me. No matter how many chances you give me, I might do a little better, but evil is still with me. The solution to my sin problem is not found in me. No matter how good a teacher I had, no matter what kind of reserved, sort of uptight, pious life I try and live, the solution to man's problem is not found in man. Not even the best of man. The evil of mankind overwhelmed the Creator in chapter 6. So much so that he decided to begin again. So he chose the most righteous of men and he set out to rebuild that community that he wanted to have with us. And just like those who had gone before him, Adam, Eve, Cain, and others, Noah chose, no thank you, Noah chose not to live in community with God. Again, if Noah's story teaches anything, especially this sour and sad ending, it teaches that the solution to my brokenness, what's wired incorrectly in me, is not found in me. It's not found in you. Not even the best of us. It's found apart from us. And later, if you pay close attention to how the history unfolds, you begin to learn under the sacrificial system, that boring book called Leviticus, you begin to learn that the solution is found in God. Not us. You see, the only thing that really works, that really solves problems, that really makes headway, is repentance and forgiveness. Think about it. Once you say the word that cuts, that hurts, you can't take it back, can you? You can't undo it. Once you do what you did that cost you your marriage, you can't go back and change it. You can't fix it. No matter how many times you promise never to do it again, it's still back there. Everybody knows it. We can try and forgive, but it's so difficult to forget, right? So what's our best option? Our best option is to turn, to change, to alter my course, and then experience the forgiveness that comes from God. That's what we find in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the first 11, we'll get to chapter 11 next time with the Tower of Babel, they demonstrate man's intentional unwillingness to walk with God. God offers the invitation, I want to bring you into perfect community with me. And we say, no thank you. Got a better idea. Because we prefer our own self-sovereignty, just like Adam just like Eve, just like Cain, and now just like Noah. But by the time you get through chapter 11 and you hit chapter 12, God introduces us to another man called Abraham. And Abraham would become the father of a great nation. Abraham himself would not be the answer to our sin problem. We've already learned that no man is the answer to my sin problem. But Abraham would be instrumental in bringing about the answer to my sin problem. Because you see, God chose one man. And from that one man came a family. And from that family came a nation. And from that nation came the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
who if you will repent, he will forgive. He laid his life down to prove it. Let me read you something. Genesis 12 and verse 2. I will make you, this is God speaking to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. That is the beginning of the nation of Israel. God chose Abraham to begin that nation. And I will bless you, Abraham. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Here it comes. Watch. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How can God make such a statement to one man? That's because from the family and from the nation of Abraham would come the Christ. The only man ever to have lived, capable of blessing every human being on planet earth. You see, Noah and the flood is not just a story about a man, a boat, and some animals. Noah and the flood is another story in a very long record revealing God's eternal driving desire to love us. And over and over in your Old Testament, that pattern repeats itself. See, Noah's best effort, his noteworthy accomplishments are so quickly overshadowed by his moral failure. And the same pattern is repeated by this Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, by Jacob his grandson, by Moses, the great leader of men, by David, the greatest king Israel ever knew, by the prophets, by the kings of Israel, by the nation as a whole. The pattern repeats itself over and over and over. Enter Jesus Christ, the solution to man's sin problem. So, I just have two questions. Have you responded? Have you responded to that Savior that didn't just pop up 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem? He's been around since man was created as part of the Trinity. And if you have responded, I hope after this, now you realize why it's so difficult to follow Jesus. Because I want to be self-sovereign, and so do you. That's why I need a savior, not a buddy, not a teacher, not an example, not a do-over. I need a savior. Because only a savior can provide true forgiveness when I'm willing to turn and repent. Let's pray. <clears throat> I'm going to give you just a few minutes few seconds, actually, just to pause in silence and consider what we've discussed. And if you want to talk to me after the service, or Tyler, or John, or any of us, if you can't catch us for some reason, use the communication card, write, Mike, call me, Tyler, call me, someone, call me. I'd love to have a conversation with you regarding your faith in Christ. Father, that's what this is about. Our simple, childlike, yet authentic faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, it is difficult to follow him because every day I wake up and I want to be in charge. It is so difficult to try and love others. It is so difficult to try and serve you when all I want to do is love myself and serve myself. So God, help me. 
Help us as we attempt to follow Jesus Christ, our only hope, because now we know that the answer to our problem is not in us. It's in you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus. That's how I even pray it. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family, and I'll see you next time.